Well, I want to minister for a few minutes this morning through a message I'm calling the incomparable riches of His grace. I believe that the single greatest hindrance to the believer resting in Christ is really just wrong programming. There's a computer word for that. We call it G-I-G-O, garbage in, garbage out. In 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul was reflecting upon something, and in chapter 3, verse 15, he says this. He says, And that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. He was saying, Timothy, because this is who he's writing to, he was saying, I'm very mindful of your grandmother Lois, and I'm very mindful of your mother Eunice. Even before I got to you, Timothy, they got to you. And from a child, thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. And he says about these Holy Scriptures, he says, they're able to make thee wise (laughs) unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. The word wise comes from the Greek word sophos, S-O-P-H-O-S. It means to make one wise. So in other words, what Paul was saying, he says, these scriptures that your grandmother and your mother put inside of you, Timothy, are there and they're designed to make you sophos. He used that Greek word sophos, which means wise. The Apostle Paul was saying to his protege, Timothy, the only reason you're wise, Timothy, is that from a child you were taught these scriptures, the scriptures about salvation and that it cometh only through Jesus Christ. I wish that were true for every single child that was born, that as an infant, their mothers and fathers would sing over them, and their mothers and fathers would pray over them, and they would quote the Word, the Word of grace, and the Word of God's unconditional love. I want to tell you something, we live in a different world. We live in a different world. In ancient Greece, there were men that were called sophists. They were taught philosophy and rhetoric. Their teachings were referred to as sophisms. Today we just call them isms, like racism. I want you to know something, racism is taught. Nobody is born a racist. It's taught. Alcoholism, it means in excess. We talk about criticism. It comes from the word critic and add the ism on it. Criticism, it literally means your adversary, your enemy, someone that's always trying to pull you down. A sophism can mean different things, but in the modern definition, today's really definition, sophisms are defined as confusing or slightly incorrect arguments used for deceiving somebody. Sophists would do this intentionally. Today, even ministers of the gospel, even believers do this, I believe unintentionally, even with the purest motive, sometimes in the name of God. A sophism is a statement that has been crafted in a way to deceive someone that's caught up in a debate or a conversation. It might make sense when you first hear it, but in reality, it is absolutely wrong. Sophisms use difficult words and complicated sentences to intimidate their audience into agreeing with them. 
In the case of the Bible, really, the sophism becomes just really misinterpretation. And that's what we did for so many years. We just misinterpreted what the scriptures were saying. Let me give you an example of this, okay? Out of Galatians chapter 5. The Bible tells us in Galatians chapter 5 that a man can fall from grace. That used to scare me because then I really thought it was up to me to keep myself in a grace so I could never fall from this grace. All my life growing up, I heard preachers, when they would preach this message and preach about this scripture here, it was always used to say that a Christian has either backslid or somehow they've got beyond the grasp of God's grace. Misrepresented, it will carry the connotation that we can be separated from grace through poor performance. Here's what the scripture says. Galatians chapter 5, verses 4 through 10. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. What the Apostle Paul is telling the Galatians here, he says, listen, you were under this Judaism, which was all about law. He was saying, I came through with a different message. And when you heard this message, kind of like we do, we're like, man, I want that to be true, but it just sounds too good to be true. It goes against everything I've been taught. But I stayed with you for a while, and I kept pouring in every day. I'd stay up until midnight, and I would just keep pouring my teachings into you. And you finally got it. I think you finally got it. And then he says, somebody kind of crept in, and they started giving you a message that was absolutely the opposite of what I've been teaching you. And what it tries to do is it tries to unravel everything you know and understand. I want to tell you something, though. As you become more and more established in this message of grace, you'll find the only thing that unravels you is God. You're not going to let this junk out there in life unravel you where you stand in terms of the way you believe about His unconditional love and His grace. Continuing with what the Apostle Paul said, he says, For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. Now watch what he says. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. He's saying, listen, nothing you do in the flesh has any value to put you in a better grace with me. Grace is a free loving gift. It's from my kindness and my generosity that I pour my grace on you. So you can do all the stuff you want to do in the flesh. I think we know what he's talking about when he's talking about circumcision. He says, but the only thing, I, I love this. He says, the only thing that counts, he boils it down to one thing. He said, listen, I know there's a lot of stuff to take in, but he said, there's only one thing that really counts. And he says, it's faith expressing itself through love. See, that's what love does. As you begin to take in the goodness of the Lord, your faith begins to grow. You begin to see, Daddy, even in situations that you don't understand and you don't have the answers for, you can still see Daddy as a good Daddy because your faith has trained you to say, My Father is faithful. My Father is good to me. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And then he says, You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? And as I was looking at that scripture last night, I literally put a G in front of race, and you were running a good grace. That Who cut in on you? Well, the only thing that can cut in on grace is the opposite of grace, the enemy of grace, and it's the law. You know, listen, if that's the only thing that will try to get in front of you, is law, works. But we're people that are finished work people. We are people of grace. He said, that kind of persuasion does not come from the one who called you. Okay? When you're dealing with stuff like that, just realize that kind of persuasion didn't come from the one who calls you. Who called us? Jesus called us. 
And then he says, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. Or in other words, what he's saying is just a little bit of law. Just a little bit of works, just a little bit of law. But he says, it's like yeast. It will begin to work through the whole batch of dough. We're like a batch of dough. He says, it begins to work through that. And that's why it's so important that we keep taking in the message of God's goodness and grace and his love for us. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. And then the Apostle Paul says, I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, in other words, those sophists, those people with philosophy and vain understandings, those people, he said, those sophists, the ones that are throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be. So he doesn't just pin this on the devil. He says, whoever that may be will have to pay the penalty. So what am I getting at? I'm saying that without the revelation that it's Christ alone, I'm saying without the revelation that it's grace alone, we will allow the sophists to speak hollow and deceptive philosophies and rhetoric into our hearts from the foundation of an obsolete covenant. Let me show you where that comes up at. Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. The Apostle Paul said it this way. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive. He's talking to people that know Jesus. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. He says, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, in Christ, you have been brought to Fullness. Oh, I love that part right there. You know what? Listen, I've been brought to fullness in Christ. That literally translates that word fullness as complete. You got to quit seeing yourself lacking things. You are complete in Christ. You know, one of the greatest highs, if you will, of our Nicaragua trip was watching Pastor Dorr from Colorado stand in a Nicaraguan church. This is a man who was born and raised in Haiti a very, very poor country. Might be poorer than Nicaragua. I don't know. They're about the same. But stand there for 15 or 20 minutes and declare to the people, you are not poor. I was raised in Haiti and I've come by to tell you, you are not poor. And we've got to see ourselves. We are not poor people. Don't say, oh, poor me. No. Oh, rich me. (laughs) We are rich. Oh, we are rich. The name of the message, the incomparable riches of his grace. We are rich people. Paul said in the word there, he says, you have been brought to the fullest. You are complete. You're not poor. He goes on to say, he is the head, God, over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands wasn't performed by the flesh. It wasn't flesh on flesh. It was grace on grace. He says, your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. I want you to meditate on those words. I mean, let them fall to the sticky side of your heart and just stay there, would you? He says, your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off, turned off. It'd be like walking over to the switch and just saying, so long. It was just that simple. He says it was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. And he's talking about the circumcision of the heart. 
He said it was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. The Apostle Paul is telling the Colossians that they have already been bought and brought by the blood of Jesus and into the fullness of Christ. He's saying, you are complete. You lack nothing. Oh, you no longer have to follow the traditions of men and the spiritual forces of this world. You have Christ, and with him came the incomparable riches of his grace. He is saying, make sure that the sophists don't confuse you by promoting a different gospel that is really no gospel at all. They will tell you that you have to work to please your daddy. I'm telling you, you don't, okay? I'm telling you that Jesus worked to please your daddy, and he called it a finished work. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. The Apostle Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ. <laughs> he called us to live in the grace of Christ. And he says, and are turning to a different gospel. The Apostle Paul just nails it every time. He says, which is no gospel at all. He said, you're going to turn to some other gospel? He said, listen, I hear what you're saying, but it's really no gospel at all. Okay? Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. The Apostle Paul was so passionate and so protective of the gospel of grace that when he wrote in the first few scriptures of the book of Galatians, he wrote these words. Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 through 16. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven, that pretty much covers everybody, doesn't it? He says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be under God's curse. As we have already said, and now say it again. Do you see how passionate he is? He's repeating himself. He said, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. He says, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin, Paul said. He said, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. That is really the gospel for you. It's not taught, it's caught. It's caught by revelation. And it's caught by sitting under that constant drip, wherever that may be. My daddy is good to me. Drip. I'm forever forgiven. Drip. He'll never leave me or forsake me. Drip. He's a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Drip. It's that constant drip of grace. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my own people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Oh, man, now he says, but when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. The Apostle Paul is just hammering on this grace. I've been called by grace. I've been empowered by grace. I'm sanctioned by grace. I live by grace. I'll die by his grace. He says, he called me by his grace. And I love this part. He says, and was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. He said, my immediate response 
was not to consult with any human being. <laughs> Paul is wise, isn't he? You know, there's those sophists out there. Listen, the day I got saved, I'm not kidding you, it was early in the morning, and that very same morning, I called one of my brothers to tell him, man, did Jesus just save me? <laughs> I was so happy. Oh, man. I called him up and said, man, Jesus just saved me. I don't know how to even explain that. I know he walked into my heart here a few hours ago, and I'm just the happiest guy in the world. I've got so much peace. And my brother said to me, Mark, I thought you were smarter than that. I wasn't expecting that response. That was a sucker punch. I said, what? What? Oh, I thought you were smarter than that. Oh, uh, what do you mean? Well, this religion stuff. I said, I didn't sign up for no religion. I signed up for Jesus. And I know he came inside of me because I can feel his peace. I can feel his love. I can feel his grace. He wasn't trying to be unkind to me. He loves me. The Apostle Paul dealt with it over and over again. People that would come along when he was trying to propagate the message of grace, and they would say, now, come on. You, this is what my brother said to me. He said, now, you don't really believe all that stuff about him, do you? I said, yes, brother, it's true. It's true. You'll never know until you say, Jesus, come into my heart. Well, it was about a year later. I got a letter from that brother of mine, and in, in that letter, among everything it said is, brother, I want to say I'm sorry for what I said to you when you called me to tell me that you accepted Jesus. He said, I, I just want you to know I prayed that prayer too and I've accepted him as my Savior. I'm like, see, I told you. <laughs> oh, and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. My immediate response was not to consult another human being, the Apostle Paul was saying. Why didn't the Apostle Paul want to consult another human being? Because he knew that the sophists were running around with confusing and incorrect arguments that were bewildering and deceiving people and robbing them of the message of the incomparable riches of his grace. Amen. He knew that because he was one of them at one time. He was zealous, he said, for the Lord. Remember, the Apostle Paul persecuted Christians, and he did it all in the name of God. He killed Christians. So he knew. He knew when this grace hit him. He knew when this grace impacted his life. Oh, there's something real here. This is bigger than anything I've been taught by all my teachers. This is bigger than anything I've ever experienced. This is worth dying for. But the Apostle Paul said, I've got so much baggage that I've been carrying. It's going to take a little while to undo all this mentality. And so I'm going to sit with Jesus for three years in the Arabian desert. I'm going to let grace teach me the message of the kingdom of God. The message that Jesus said, repent, change your mind, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He was talking about grace. He was saying, listen, change your mind. I know you've been relating to my daddy a certain way over these years, but I'm going to shed my blood for you so that you can have a different way of thinking about my father. The word incomparable is made from combining the prefix in with the word comparable. Brought together, they make up the word incomparable. When you add that little prefix in, I-N, to any word, it totally changes the meaning. Let me give an example of that. If I was to take the word visible, visible means that which can be seen, right? Now let's just add that little Latin prefix on there, invisible. It means that which cannot be seen. In other words, what I could see, I can no longer see. It's not going a similar direction. It's not going the same direction at all. It's like it did a U-turn, and it's going a totally different direction. Incomparable translates as that which is not suitable for comparison. It's not suitable for comparison. In other words, when I say the incomparable riches of His grace, I am saying that there's nothing and no one 
and no thing that compares to the riches of His grace. Nothing is similar, nothing is suitable for comparison. An ocean of works is not equal to a thimble of grace. Nothing compares. Nothing compares to Jesus. Anyone that has watched the Olympic Games has probably made note that when an Olympian athlete is done performing, he's judged by judges. I began to note several years ago that the high score and the lowest score are thrown out. They're discarded. It's to eliminate bias. Let me drive home this point here. I'm a judge watching an Olympian do their gymnastic floor exercise. And that girl right there happens to be the daughter of one of my really good friends. Let's give her a little bit higher score because, after all, her daddy is my friend. Or you could take it just the opposite way. The girl that is coming up is my friend's daughter, but the girl that's performing now, who's really better than her, I don't want her to win, so I'll give her a lower score. They do that to eliminate bias. They throw out the high score and the low score. Carry this mentality now over into grace. When it comes to grace, grace does not just throw out the highest and the lowest score. Grace throws out all the scores. It throws out all the judge's input. If it didn't, it would cease to be grace. Because then it would be based upon partly my contribution. I did good, didn't I? I had a flawless exercise. I earned some points in this thing. No, grace throws out every single score because it's about Christ alone. That means our worst blunders and our greatest victories do not add or subtract from Jesus' finished work. Jesus finished the work. He accomplished what his daddy had sent him to do without our assistance and without our input. And when he finished his work, he released the incomparable riches of his grace. Several years ago, my wife and I were worshiping in a particular church, and that song, Cornerstone, was being sung. I like that song. The lyrics go something like this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Oh, and they sang it again. And then they sang that again, that verse. And I finally, I could not contain myself, and I tugged on her shirt sleeve. She was worshiping. I tugged on her shirt sleeve, and I said, Honey, our hope is built not only on nothing less, but it's built on nothing more. It's Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love. It's not Christ plus. It's Christ alone. And I want to remind you today, it's not grace plus, it's grace alone. What I want you to see through the balance of the message is this. Grace levels the playing field. It brings the valleys up and it brings the mountains down. Grace takes one hand and it reaches into the pit of hell to pull up the worst of criminals. Grace takes the other hand and it reaches into the heavenly and it grabs the most beautiful person and it pulls that person down. Both beauty and beast stand on level ground at the base of the cross. 
It's a place where gold medals lose their luster. It's a place where contributions are discarded. It's a place where judges' opinions don't count and are tossed out. Friends, our salvation originated in Christ and is held together simply by one thing, and that is by His incomparable riches, the incomparable riches we call grace. Grace swallows up the twin attitudes of, number one, look at what I've done, and number two, look at what I've done. Well, wait a minute now. You said that twice. I meant to say it twice. You see, because how you say it determines what you actually mean. You see, a man, when he fails, will beat his chest and say, look what I've done. Oh, no, look what I've done. But let a man build a dynasty one time. He'll grab his suspenders and he'll say, look what I've done. One is condemnation. That is the look at what I've done. And the other one is exaltation. And they are both wrong. You see, condemnation will make a man lie down in a pit. You know why? Because he doesn't feel worthy of higher ground. Exaltation will make a man lie down in a palace. Motel 6 won't do. But it's only revelation. It's only the revelation of his grace that will make a man lie down in a pasture. You can have your pit. You can have your palace. I'll take my pasture. Only the revelation of the incomparable riches of His grace will make a man lie down in a pasture. Jesus said that true rest is found in the green pasture, and Christ is that green pasture. David knew all about that green pasture. He wrote about it in Psalm 23 when he said, The Lord, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I want you to know something. David was acquainted with the pit. And David was acquainted with the palace. But when he meditated on the goodness of the Lord while the sheep were laying down in the pasture is probably when he wrote Psalm 23. I don't think he wrote it on the fly as he was walking with the sheep. He probably waited till they were lying down in green pastures and he just couldn't contain himself and said, God, I got to write a psalm about you. Oh, the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want. And he looked out across the sheep and he said, He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. I think he was thinking about the goodness of the Lord when he penned those words, He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. The enemy will try to convince us that if we could just get our own palace, everything will be fine. I want to remind you something. David couldn't sleep one night in his palace. He couldn't rest. So he got up and he started walking the marble halls of his palace. And finally he walked onto his balcony and he looked across the way and that's where he saw Bathsheba. And of course we know that story. I want to tell you something. Palaces don't bring rest. It's Christ that brings rest. Christ is our Sabbath rest. An accurate revelation of grace strips away the condemnation of, look what I've done. And an accurate revelation of grace strips away the exaltation of, Oh, look what I've done. Why is it important to know this? Because rest will not come until you and I get our eyes off of self, quit working an entire lifetime to win gold medals, trophies, ribbons, and to have our moment in the spotlight to stand there and let the whole world see us. Rest comes by beholding what Jesus has given us through the incomparable riches of His grace. I was reminded in preparation for this message, some of you don't know this yet, but 
I was a billiards player growing up. I spent a lot of hours over the table. I played so much and was so good at that game, people feared me and I liked that. I began to win tournaments and trophies and ribbons and stuff. There was a great collection of it. And about, oh, let's see, about four years into Jesus, I started looking at all those trophies on the wall one day, and I said, that is not who I am. Because every time I looked at those trophies, it was a reminder, you're somebody great, look what you've done. They've got a brass trophy, you put it on your shelf. Some were little ones, some were big tall ones, but they were all there. And every time I looked at them, I said, look what I've done. I grabbed my suspenders and said, look what I've done. And four years into Jesus, I said, that is not who I am. And I took all those trophies off the wall, shelf and all, put them in a garbage bag, and put them right at the curb. And I want to tell you something, I have never missed those trophies a day in my life. That is not who I am. I'm a blood-bought child of God, saved by the incomparable riches of His grace. Friends, for me, it was look at what I've done. Maybe you've had a different way to say, look at what I've done. But really, it's look at what Jesus has done through His incomparable riches. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-3, through 3, we find these words. The Apostle Paul said, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. When I read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, I see things that I would not want on my resume, but it's too late. That is, until Jesus' precious blood came along and said, I'm going to just blot this out. I'm just going to take care of this. That same precious blood that was shed at Calvary's cross is what blotted out all of this stuff written in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. There's no denying at one time I was dead in my transgressions and sins. I'll be the first one to tell you that. There's no doubt in my mind that I followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. There's no doubt I gratified the cravings of my flesh and followed its desires and thoughts. The Bible says in Ephesians 2.1, as for you, it says you, look at those words, were dead. It literally means past tense, right? You were dead in your transgressions and sins. The question becomes, are we still dead in our transgressions and sins? That's the question. The answer is simply no. We are no longer dead in sins, we are dead to sin. Amen? Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. When you were dead in your sins. He's saying, there was a time you were dead in your sins. He said, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. That's what took care of the problem. God made you alive with Christ. And he tells you how he did it. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to his cross. Oh, thank you, Jesus. In other words, in this scripture, he is saying he has eliminated all bias by throwing out all the judges' scores, including the low marks that stood against us to condemn us. Did you know that literally the word sin in the Greek means to miss the mark? We think it's about going out doing the dirty dozen, but you go look it up in your concordance, it literally translates as one who misses the mark. 
Friends, when an athlete go to stick their landing and they miss their landing, it's called missing their mark. I want you to know something. Jesus took care of that with his precious blood so that we would never miss the mark again. In our spirit, we can never, ever miss the mark ever again because Jesus made it so that would never happen. How did he do that? By the incomparable riches of his grace. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them. I love that. It's like, okay, you've been embarrassing my kids for a long time. I'm going to embarrass you now, okay? He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And then he says this, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Now, we could open all that up. It would take a long time to explain all those things. But if you just look at the words, do not let anyone judge you. Do you see that? Therefore, do not let anyone judge you. You be good to people even when they're not good to you. You don't question their motivations. It's not your business. You just pray for them and, and be good to them. Just show them grace. God is not a spectator. He's a creator. Okay? And He has provided for us a way out of our sins through the incomparable riches of His grace. We see an example of God's incomparable riches of grace through the story of the Israelites in bondage, working for their slave masters in Egypt. But I want you to make note that they didn't work their way out of Egypt. They were there a long time. They didn't work their way out by 12-hour back-breaking days, and finally the Egyptians said, wow, you guys are really something, man. You've got favor with us. You've just treated us so well. You've worked your way out of this. No, friends. They came out of Egypt by the hand of the Lord expressed through the incomparable riches of His grace. You see, they were not even under the Mosaic Law yet. That didn't come until in the wilderness. This was pure grace. Although they were under the grace of the Lord, though, they still faced opposition. Listen, we're people of grace, but you have to understand, we're going to still face opposition. Opposition is still going to come, okay? But time and time again, the Lord proved that the incomparable riches of His grace would flow and manifest in every situation they found themselves in. I believe it's time for the body of Christ to grab a hold of this truth, the same truth. If this was true for them, this is true for us. We're under a better covenant even. In Isaiah chapter 43, verses 15 and 16, now watch how I stay in context here. We're in Isaiah chapter 43, verses 15 and 16. Isaiah said this, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus saith the Lord, which maketh a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters. What is he talking about? He's talking about the Israelites coming out of their bondage. And then skip up a couple of verses to Isaiah chapter 43, verses 18 and 19. He says, Remember ye not the former things, neither consider the things of old. Behold, I do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth, but ye shall not know it. It will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. I want you to see how that scripture dovetails into our covenant in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. Take a look at this. 
In Isaiah chapter 43, verses 18 and 19, he says, Remember you not the former things, neither consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, under the covenant of grace, he says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature or a new thing. All things are passed away. That is your old nature. It has died. Behold, all things are become new. In Isaiah chapter 43, verses 25 and 26, we're skipping up just a few verses, staying in context. The Lord says this, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and will not remember thy sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us plead together, declare thou, that thou mayest be justified. That word justified literally means to be declared righteous. When he says, put me in remembrance, I literally see that as him saying, remind me of the incomparable riches of my son. Remind me about the incomparable riches of my grace. Remind me that I'm good. Put me in remembrance. God is saying, put me in remembrance of how good I am. I've showed it to you. Friends, it was the incomparable riches of God's grace that led the Israelites out of Egypt. Before they left, they took all the gold and silver with them that is the incomparable riches of grace at work. It was the incomparable riches of his grace that none of the Israelites left with sickness in their body or disease in their body. It was the incomparable riches of grace that parted the Red Sea and allowed man and woman and child and beast to walk across there on dry ground. It was the incomparable riches of Christ that took out the enemy that pursued them. It was the incomparable riches of grace that provided them with manna and quail and water while they were in the wilderness. It was the incomparable Comparable riches of his grace that provided a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to keep them warm and to keep them cool in the desert. And it was nothing but the incomparable riches of his grace that provided a cross in the desert, a pole with a brass serpent on it, so that when they were bitten and they were going to die, they had a death sentence on them. They could come and they could just look upon that brass serpent. Brass is always symbolic of judgment, understanding that my judgment has been transferred to that cross, to that pole. It's the same thing with us. Behold the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. Back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath." As we take the grand step now into verse number four, you can see he's got this crescendo that's building right now. He's reminding us of how it used to be for us and stuff like that. And then in verse four, he releases something very powerful and very beautiful. It unveils a wonderful truth that begins with that three-letter conjunction, but. B-U-T. The word but literally means moreover. If we look at Webster's 1828 dictionary, here's how it defines the word moreover. It says this. It says, beyond what has been said. Do you get it? Verses 3 gave you the resume of how you used to look. He says, but, or moreover, let's go beyond. Quit dwelling on the stuff that's been said about you, and let's look at what I say about you now. Quit talking to human beings, the sophists that are going to sow stuff in your heart that are not parallel to what Jesus would say to you. Oh, man, don't listen to those voices. Let's go beyond what has been said about us on our former resume. We do this by beholding 
the incomparable riches of His grace. As believers, we are not in denial to what has been said about us, but the overriding truth is this, that which was penned on the right side of the conjunction but tells us that the judgment that we were previously under and the penalty of the wrath that we deserved has been swallowed up by what's coming in verse 4 and following. It is the incomparable riches of His love and grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. But because of this great love for us, there it is, see? He just got through verses 1 through 3 telling you about all your junk. And then he says, but, moreover, everything has changed. Why? How? Because of this great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And then the next verses, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show, look at that, the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of yourself, it is the gift of God not of works, lest any man should boast. It takes the suspenders right off of you. You don't need them anymore. You don't have to look and say, look what I've done. It was by grace that you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. In preparation for this message last night, the Holy Spirit said to me, tell him about your friend John. Around 1987, I was living in Freeport, Illinois, and I met a man one day who was in sales. I was in sales, he was in sales. He came walking into our store to sell us something. I listened to him. He was an elderly gentleman, been at it a long time. I could tell he was a very seasoned salesman. His name was John Fickner. He called on us a couple of times. We didn't, I don't know if we bought anything from him or not, but he called on us a few times. And I didn't see John for a while. A couple of years went by, and all of a sudden... I saw John walking in. I thought, there comes John. And so I met him, and we said hello to one another. We talked for a little while. He didn't tell me his problems or his needs, but I happened to walk him to the car that day. Now listen, this was before Jesus, okay? I happened to walk him to his car that day, and when I walked him to his car, I noticed his tires were as bald as a cue ball. I said, John, you put a lot of miles on this car. You got some pretty thin tires there. He said, yeah. He said, I, I don't have the money to replace them. You know, I believe that the Holy Spirit will speak to unbelievers. I mean, come on, he talks to donkeys, right? I just felt in my gut, said, buy him tires. I said, John, I want to buy you tires. He said, Mark, he said, don't, don't worry about it. He said, I'm behind on my car payment too. They're going to come take the car anyway. He said, I'm actually living in my car. I thought about it, and I said, John, let's find a way for you to keep the car. I didn't make a habit of doing this. It might have been the first time I ever did it in my life. I said, I will co-sign to get that car brought back up to date. He was very, very grateful. We went and put tires on the car. We got his car co-signed. He didn't have a job, really. He wasn't making any money. I gave him a job. I said, why don't you come to work for me? I'll, I'll let you work with my company. So I hired him to work for us, so he had income now. He said, well, I've still got to live out of my car. I said, why don't you come stay at my house? See, that's what grace does. Grace just keeps supplying. It just oversupplies every need. Even the needs we don't even ask for, grace is there to just keep supplying. 
God just gave me favor with him. You know, he wasn't pouring into my life. I was pouring into his life. And then I nursed John back to health and got him on his way. And I didn't see John for a while. And then in 1995, I got saved. And a couple years later, I said to the Holy Spirit, I said, Holy Spirit, I want to know where John's at. I don't know if he's still alive or I want to know where John's at. And the Holy Spirit said, why don't you look in the phone book? I mean, we overcomplicate things sometimes. I didn't find John in the phone book, but in an area I thought he might be from, I found someone with that same last name that turned out it was his son. I called. I explained the situation. I'm a friend of your daddy's, and uh, I said, is he still alive? He said, yes, he's still alive. He lives in this city. I said, well, does he have a phone? I can call him. He said, yeah, here's his number. I called John. When he answered the phone, I, I called him Thick Baby. I said, Thick Baby? He knew exactly who it was. He's like, what? And I said, John, I said, I'm coming to your home. I'm going to take you out for breakfast on such and such a day. I went to his apartment, picked him up, and we went down to a downtown diner, and we had breakfast together. When we were done, we went back to his apartment, and it was in his apartment that I was able to look across at him, and I said to my friend John, if you were to die today, I said, do you know where you'd spend eternity? And he hung his head, and he said, I think I'd go to hell. I said, that bothers me. Does that bother you? He said, yeah, that bothers me. I said, it bothers God too. In fact, it bothered him so much, he sent Jesus to die for your sins. I said, did you know that? He said, no, I didn't know that. I said, you didn't know that Jesus died for you? He said, no, I never knew that. He's 70 years old, never knew that Jesus died for his sins. And it was in his living room that I was able to say, John, would you like Jesus to come into your heart? And he said, yes, Mark, I'd like Jesus to come into my heart and led him to Jesus that day. The point of the story is grace. Grace is doing things to prepare the way for people, to prepare future things going on, and grace is always expressed through being gracious and loving. I had no idea that when I was sowing all that kindness and that grace into my friend's life, I had no idea that someone in the future, I'd give my heart to Jesus, and then a few years later, I would take that same friend who was in the pit and reach down with a hand of grace and pull him out of it and connect his hand to my Father in heaven. That's what the incomparable riches of his grace will do for you. Father, we thank you for this word today. We thank you, Father, that the incomparable riches of your grace is continually reaching out to us oversupplying every single need we've got. The Israelites could not have known your love unless it was expressed first in your grace that you were gracious to them when they didn't deserve you to be good to them. And it's because you're gracious to people and you're good to people that somewhere along the line we have the opportunities to look into their hearts and say, there's a God that loves you. There's a God in heaven that loves you. Would you like to know him? And Father, we thank you. Only the Holy Spirit can orchestrate both beauty and beast to stand at the base of the cross, the place where the incomparable riches of his grace flowed once and for all. In Jesus' name, amen.